Turn with me now in God's word to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Just by way of reminder, last Sunday I, I mentioned that we would, beginning, we would begin our Advent series in terms of our study next Lord's Day. And again, if you want to be preparing for that, uh, you can read ahead Psalm 22, next Lord's Day, Psalm 23, uh, the Sunday after that, and then conclude with Psalm 24, three portraits of Christ, our shepherd. And so I invite you to read them, reflect upon them, and ask that uh, all-important question, what do they teach us concerning the Lord Jesus, and in particular, his role as shepherd, and I pray that will be indeed a profitable uh, series for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, our business for today, verses 17 through 24. And so I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Is this all there is to the Christian life? It's a good question. Is this all there is to the Christian life? Or is there something more? Is there some secret that I need to discover? Some secret whereby I attain to a greater level of spirituality? Is there some silver bullet? Some long lost key that if only I could discover it, I would enjoy a walker close with the Lord, closer communion and fellowship with him. Uh, many have answered those questions erroneously over the centuries, and they continue to err in their answers. Uh, some look to a decisive experience that leads to the higher life or the victorious life. They speak of a complete filling a total breaking, or a second blessing. And if only I could experience this, if only I could experience that, well, finally, I would arrive at a higher plane and enjoy a much greater and much deeper level of spirituality. Some look to a particular calling as holding out our hope of a closer walk with God, they turn to the martyrs, the mystics, 
the monastics, the missionaries, the ministers, as exemplifying some sort of super spirituality. Still others look to detachment from everyday life as essential to progress. They assume erroneously that release, release from the mundane roles and responsibilities of life will free them to pursue a deeper relationship with God. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. Brothers, yes, this is all there is. We are in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, we have everything we're going to get. And we are everything we're going to be. The question is this, do we realize it and do we enjoy it? That's the question. Paul is addressing a church, the church at Corinth, 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, a church in which there is a significant number of people who are convinced that everyday life, everyday conditions, circumstances, they are an to true spirituality. There are people in the church at Corinth who are convinced that the mundane and what they perceive to be the trivialities of life and the multiple roles and duties and responsibilities are posing an obstacle, creating an obstacle, preventing them, inhibiting them from close, closer communion, closer fellowship with God. There's one particular condition that the Corinthians have in view, which they think is a real obstacle, impediment, when it comes to greater spirituality, and it is this, marriage. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard for us to enter into it, but 1 Corinthians 7 makes absolutely no sense unless we get it. This is the world in which they live. They actually think that marriage is an impediment to the higher life. A marriage is an impediment to a greater life. Marriage is an impediment to a deeper, greater spirituality. And so in this chapter, Paul addresses them head on. It is a lengthy chapter. Just look at the end of it. 40 verses. We've jumped in at the middle, verses 17 through 24, because these are the key that unlock the whole. Notice firstly, these verses 17 through 24, that there is a very simple structure. If you want to see it in black and white, you can open up the church worship guide bulletin and in there you'll see the sermon notes and you will observe five points. There's the outline to these verses. There is a command in verse 17. It is followed by an illustration in verses 18 and 19. There is a command in verse 20. It's the same command he gives in verse 17. He follows it up with another illustration in verses 21 through 23. And then there is the command in verse 24. And so you get it, don't you? Paul utters the same command three times. At the start of this section, at the end of this section, in the middle of this section. I conclude from that, what? 
This is a pretty important command. Three times, start, finish, middle. And in between the first instance and the middle instance, he gives illustration number one of the command. And between the middle instance and the third instance at the end, illustration number two, he is taken up with a theme right in the middle of this chapter, verses 17 through 24. And what is this theme? To get our minds around it, we need to observe that he uses the word call eight times in these verses. Call. And he uses it in two distinct ways. He uses it firstly in reference to our conversion to Christ. And so if you're a Christian, there was a time when you were, you were called, you were converted. You were converted from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You were made one with the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit, as I like to say, took hold of you. And you took hold of Christ by faith. And you became one with him. Christ himself baptized you by means of the Holy Spirit into his body. And you were made one with him. That is your calling. You were called out of darkness. You were called to salvation. You were called from the devil, from the world, from your sin. And you were called to God. And he made you a saint. And he made you one of his children. And he made you a member of his kingdom and a member of his family. And so that's the first instance in which Paul uses this term in these verses in reference to our conversion to Christ. But he uses it in a second way, in reference to our condition in life. What do you do for a living? That's your condition in life. Are you single or married? Do you have children or don't you have children? Have you been to school or haven't you been to school? These are our conditions in life. And Paul's point is what? You are to remain in the condition in which you were converted. Three times. Some of you are staring at me in disbelief. Oh, I need to read it again. Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Why does Paul have to emphasize this? He has to emphasize this because he's dealing with people who don't have the first clue as what it means to be spiritual. He's dealing with people who don't understand, they've forgotten, they no longer get it, what it means to be in the Lord Jesus. He is addressing, again, not everyone, but a significant contingent in the church at Corinth who think, well, if I want to grow in godliness, if I want to be really holy, if I want to make progress in the spiritual life, if I want to be spiritual, then there are certain conditions in my life pertaining to my job, my marital status, parenting, all these things. There are things I must change. Because these things in and of themselves will be the determining factor as to the progress I make in my spirituality. And what is Paul saying in the vernacular? What is he saying? Sheer and utter nonsense. No. 
remain in that calling, feel free to remain in that calling, because that is not that calling that makes you spiritual. It is not that calling that determines who you are in the Lord Jesus. It is not that calling who will determine whether or not you grow in godliness. No, that calling is God-given. Here's what you're to do. You are to live out your identity in Christ in that calling. That's his point. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he has one particular, specific condition in view. It is marriage. And he addresses five groups. Here's Paul's own application of verses 17 through 24. He applies it firstly. And we looked at this in adult Sunday school earlier. He applies it firstly in verses 1 through 7 to those who are married, but think they should be celibate in order to be spiritual. He applies it secondly in verses 8 through 9 to those who are widowed and aren't sure if they should remarry. Will this be an impediment to my growth in godliness? Should I or shouldn't I? He applies it thirdly in verses 10 through 11 to those who are married to a believer and they're considering divorce. Why would they be considering divorce? Because they have this idea that marriage isn't God's will. They have this idea that marriage, again, is an obstacle to the spiritual life. And I would be better off if I were on my own. And then he applies it fourthly in verses 12 through 16. To those who are married to an unbeliever and are considering divorce. Why does he need to speak to them? He needs to speak to them because this man, this woman, he has convinced himself, well, you know, my, my, my spouse is an unbeliever. Well, how, how am I ever going to make headway in the Christian life, the Christian journey with dragging around an unbelieving spouse. It's not possible. So I, I have to divorce her in order to grow in godliness and grow in Christ-likeness. And then the fifth group, verses 25 through 40, he applies it to those who are considering marriage despite what he calls, and we have no time for it now, but we will get there next month, the present distress. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The whole chapter swings on verses 17 through 24. In verses 17 through 24, they stand on that command. Let each one just remain, be content, be satisfied in that condition in which you were converted. No, no, you don't need to do something else. You don't need to be something else. You don't need to change the life you're living. You don't need to change your, your condition, your marital status, your social status, your economic status, or change anything else. No, God has called you, saved you, and he saved you when you were in that condition. He has assigned it, appointed it to you, and here's what he now wants you to do, and here's the path to true spirituality. You simply live out your identity in Christ, in your calling, whatever it is. That is the path to godliness. That is the path to Christ-likeness. Let me unpack the verses for you now. We'll walk through them. I'm not going to take a lot of time on this. The command and illustration. The command and illustration. The command. So there it is again. The command. He starts it off in verse 17. Note the two principles that he introduces. Principle number one. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. When did the Lord assign it? Before time. 
We've entered the realm of God's secret decrees here, his sovereign will that the Lord has assigned to each of his own, each of his people, each of his sheep. He has assigned to them a certain life to lead. Notice the second principle and to which God has called him. We're no longer dealing in that realm before time, but in time. Before time, in the secret counsel and decrees of God, he has assigned to each of us a certain life, condition in life, economic status, social status, marital status, on and on and on and on and on it goes. And in time, he has called us to lead that life. These two principles are to dictate how we live. Therefore, he says, let each person lead that life. God's given it to you. This must govern our thought patterns. This must be determinative in our approach to our marriage, our job, everything else, that we have a calling. And it isn't a secular calling. Please get this, Christian. It is a sacred calling. And how we fulfill that calling is as important as what we're doing right now, gathered at God's, as God's people on a Sunday morning. It is part of our worship. It is part of our service to God. It is a part of how we change society, transform the world, and evangelize the nations. It is simply by embracing what God has given you to do and doing it unto his glory. And understand he has assigned it to you and he has called it to you, called you to it, and we embrace it and seek to glorify him in it. That's the command. You need an illustration. Well, Paul goes for the throat, the jugular. With the illustration in verses 18 and 19, could he get any more controversial? The issue of circumcision and uncircumcision, the basic social dividing line in that day between Jew and Gentile. Was anyone, verse 18, at the time of his call, when you were converted, already circumcised? So were you a Jew? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Well, let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether ethnically you're a Jew or a Gentile, when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to serving God, when it comes to worshiping God, it is of no consequence at all. It doesn't matter. Being circumcised doesn't make you more spiritual than the uncircumcised. Uncircumcised makes you more spiritual than the circumcised. Being a Jew makes you more spiritual than a Gentile. Being a Gentile more spiritual. No, 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 no. It is your identity in Christ. And if that is who you are when you were called, you stay and remain in that identity and you seek to glorify Christ in it. Look at the third division then. Back to the command, verse 20, just to reemphasize it. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. In Christ, we have everything we are ever going to be. In Christ, we are everything we are ever going to be, everything we're ever going to have. Societal change adds nothing. Marital change doesn't affect this. Financial change, economic change, conditions, circumstances of life, these factors have no bearing when it comes to who we are in Christ Jesus. These things are not the end. They are the means. They are simply the means by which we live out our identity in Christ. Do you need another illustration? Paul thinks we do. So in verses 21 through 23, he pulls out another one. What is it? Slavery and freedman. Verse 21. 
Were you a slave when called, when converted? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, he's no fatalist. You can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So again, are you a slave? It doesn't affect your spirituality. There's no bearing on it at all. If you're a freed man, it's completely inconsequential. It doesn't matter what you do for your living. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. It doesn't matter what your calling in life is. You remain in it. You be content in it. Yes, if you can better your circumstances, you're a slave and you want to be free, go for it. If you can better your economic circumstances, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that kind of ambition. But understand this, that has nothing to do with godliness. Nothing to do with holiness. That's not how we arrive at some super spirituality. No, we simply live out our identity in Christ in whatever place, condition, circumstance God has placed us. That is what it means to be spiritual. That is the spiritual life. And in case we missed it the first two times, and it's quite possible someone in this room has, yeah, you know who you are. We get it for the third time, the command. Verse 24, so, ergo, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. We don't need to alter our status, our condition, the life we've been called to in order to be spiritual. You might be in the historical setting. You might be an unmarried Gentile slave. Paul's command is remain with God in your calling. You might be a married Jewish free woman. And God's command is remain with God in your calling. All right. You got the text? We need to hear this big time, big time. Paul's going to apply it himself. I've already referenced that. We got to work backwards from verse 17 all the way back to verse 1. And you can work forwards from verse 25 all the way to the end of the chapter. There's his own application. And he really drives it home in the context of marital status. Because again, there is this contingent in the church at Corinth. They have convinced themselves this goes back, as I explained in adult Sunday school this morning, this goes back to an erroneous philosophical system called dualism that shapes their thinking, whereby they think, no, the single life, celibacy, asceticism, that if I do these things or live this way and change my circumstances, in particular my marital status, that will release me and free me to be the man, to be the woman I should be, and to serve God as I only can in that status, and to arrive finally at that level of super spirituality. And Paul applies then verses 17 through 24, that principle, directly to their thinking. And again, he says what? Absolute sheer nonsense. You don't get it. You just don't get it. God has called you. He's made you one with the Lord Jesus. He has bestowed on us in Christ Jesus everything he has to give us. We are the beneficiaries of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The question is this, are we now living out these blessings, this identity precisely in the context, 
in which he has placed us. We don't need to make any changes. We don't need to do this. We don't need to get rid of him, get rid of her, change jobs, move town. Oh, if only I could do this, do that, or the next thing. Well, boy, then I could finally be who I want to be. Finally make some progress in my spiritual journey. Paul is saying, nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. You don't understand. No, God has assigned you and called you to a certain condition of life. And whatever that condition is, you be content in it. And you seek to serve him in it. That's why we need to hear this command. To break it down, I'm going to give you five points of application. Here they are, number one. We need to hear this command. To remain in the condition in each one was called. We need to hear this command so that we might put to death the notion Put to death the notion, and there might be just one. There could be a number of people here right now who need to hear this. So that we might put to death once and for all the notion that there's some sort of super spirituality out there. Folks, there isn't. There's life. There's life, and it's glorious. There is the life to which God has called you. And to be spiritual is to live a spirit-renewed life in whatever that condition is, thereby honoring and serving and glorifying him. Here it is again. We need to hear this command so that we might put to death the notion that there is some sort of super spirituality out there. Our position as Christians in Christ is our identity. It's who we are. Our condition in life is the means by which we live out our identity. Single or married. Carpenter or electrician. Student or retired. Male or female. Young or old. None of these make us spiritual. None of these make us godlier or holier. God has assigned us and called us to a life. And we live out our identity in Christ in our calling. And so the next time someone comes to you or someone comes to me, usually younger in age, and says, I just want to do something that counts in life. You have my permission to scream. <laughs> just scream at the top of your lungs. What do you think you're doing in your calling? You're doing everything that counts in life. You're serving the one who has bought you. And you're seeking to glorify him in it. It isn't about what we do. It's about how we do it. There you go. That's it. Put that one on the refrigerator when you go home. It isn't about what we do, but how we do it. Changing diapers, peeling potatoes, balancing checkbooks, teaching students, painting walls, cleaning floors, cutting grass, Raising children, preaching sermons, writing tickets. Put that one in there for Jesse. Reading books. 
sitting, not that I've had any experience of that with Jesse, but I understand that's what he's doing these days. Sitting exams, buying groceries. Brothers and sisters, this is the life to which God has assigned us and called us. And it's glorious. And we're to serve him in it. Here's the second reason why we need to hear this command. So that we might see that there's so much more to work than receiving a paycheck. So much more to work than receiving a paycheck. We need to study how to glorify God in our vocation. What am I doing? And why am I doing it? For whom am I doing it? What is my motivation? What is my goal? In this room right now, nurses, teachers, carpenters, receptionists, accountants, managers, waitresses, plumbers, salesmen, housewives, doctors, bankers, officers, painters, pastors, cleaners, administrators, and on and on and on it goes. And my apologies to anyone I've missed. In this room right now, and here are the two most important questions you can ask. The first, based on verse 19, do we make it our chief responsibility to obey him? How do I get that out of verse 19? We'll read it. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. It doesn't matter. But keeping the commandments of God. In my vocation, do I keep the commandments of God? In my vocation, is it my chief priority to obey him? And here's the second question that matters. Do we fulfill our calling, aware of his presence with us? Where do I get that from? It's right there in verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him, it's a beautiful statement, there let him remain all by himself. There let him remain with God because he's in it. He's in it. And so do we make it our chief responsibility to obey him? Do we fulfill our calling aware of his presence with us? Do we want to transform the United States of America? We want to transform the world? There it is, folks. Oh, no, I have to do something that really counts. No, you don't, folks. There it is, folks. That's how we transform Glen Rose, Texas. That's how we transform Texas. That's how the United States gets transformed. That's how this world gets transformed. It's by simply in our vocation, whatever it is, and however mundane you think it is, it is not mundane. It is glorious. He has bought us. He has assigned us to it, called us to it. And we make it our chief responsibility to obey him. And we fulfill our calling, aware of his presence with us. And that is how the kingdom of Christ spreads right there. Here's a third reason we need to hear this command so that we can rest in God who is sovereign over our circumstances. 17th verse, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Points to his kingship, does it not? He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. It points to his sovereignty. As the word of God declares, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. Now be careful. There's nothing wrong with ambition. Ambition is a good thing when rightly defined, is it not? 
I think Paul points is in that direction. Verse 21, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But obviously, obviously, what? If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. There's nothing wrong with ambition. Nothing wrong with bettering ourselves. Nothing wrong with seeking to be prosperous, I suppose. What's the issue with ambition? What's the problem with ambition? It can quickly become unhinged where we lose sight of what? Why we're doing this. Why we are pursuing this. Why we are chasing after that. Why we do want to improve or seek upward mobility. Oh, our motive matters. Our motive is everything. Our greatest ambition is not upward mobility or material prosperity. It is to please God in the calling to which he has called us. And so in moving house or changing employment or whatever the case might be in this context, if I can do that and in good conscience before the Lord know that, yes, I'm still making it my chief responsibility to obey him. Yes, I'm going to fulfill this calling, aware of his presence with me. Yes, I'm still motivated by God's glory. There's no selfish ambition. No selfish ambition comes into play. Then by all means, if you can do it, avail yourself of the opportunity. But we can rest in the midst of it all. We can rest in God who is sovereign over our circumstances. Fourth reason we need the command. So that we can delight in the knowledge that God is always with us. That takes us back to verse 24. In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. A strained, a strained marriage. There's some condition, isn't it? An irritating colleague at work. I mean, really irritating. An overbearing boss. A messy home. Perpetual struggles with stress and sleeplessness. We might view all of these things as inhibiting our spirituality. God doesn't. There's the wonder, folks. He doesn't. We think these things are an impediment to our growth and godliness. God doesn't see it that way. He sees this as the condition in which he has placed us at that moment. And he has called us to do one very simple, straightforward thing. It is to honor him in it and to seek to please him above all else. And lay hold of this promise that he is with us no matter our conditions, however unpleasant, to strengthen us, to enable us, and ultimately to use us. Here's number five. Yes, I know in the sermon notes there are only four, but here's number five, all right? We need this command so that we never forget that we are, we're called. It's who we are. We are called by God. Called in terms of converted to Christ and called in terms of whatever our status and condition is in this life. From election to glorification, I'm called, dependent upon God's saving and sustaining grace. He's chosen me from all eternity, predestined me to share the glory of his son. And called me out of death, enabling me to believe in Christ. And I am convinced, firmly convinced, absolutely assured that he will complete in me what he started. And until then, 
Here's the point of the text. Take it home with you. Until then, I am to remain with him in the life to which he has assigned me and called me. And I am to seek to glorify him in it. Our Heavenly Father, we join with one heart and one voice in giving you praise this day because you are indeed glorious, incomparable in power and wisdom and goodness. There is nothing and no one like you in heaven above nor on the earth below. And we thank you for your long suffering toward us, your patience with us, and your loving kindness as so wonderfully displayed by making us one with Christ Jesus. Help us to live out this identity. Help us to take hold of Christ through faith each and every day. And by your grace, by your power, enabling power, and by your spirit, seek to live in such a way that glorifies and honors you. Help us, we pray. And we do so in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I would invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll make reference to it in a few moments. Uh, just by way of preparation. As we partake of the supper together, I, I ask you to keep just a few things in mind. As we pause and we consider, you know, what's going on as we take this plate, pass it from one hand to the next and eat this bread. And then as we take those trays and they make their way through the, the auditorium, the sanctuary, and we drink these cups and we hear these references to the body and to the blood of the Lord Jesus, what, what, what are we doing? What is going on here? 